Hello, I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette, and we appreciate you tuning in to the Boston Podcast Network, who produce our podcast. And I'm here with my illustrious co-host, the great Beatles professor at Suffolk University, Mr. David Gallant. Hello, David. Hello, Chachi. How are you? Doing great. It's a pleasure to see you again. We also have David Yaz sitting in every now and then. He is our producer and the the man behind the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com. And of course, our podcast is brought to you by Subaru of New England. We appreciate them. And uh, Professor, we have a very special guest today. This book that recently came out, I just love it. It's just an amazing look into one year in the Beatles' career, an important year. It's called The Beatles 1963, A Year in the Life. And we have the author today, David Rees, who I've uh, come to know over the last month. We've done a couple of Beatles-related shows together. And his new book really is fantastic. It's published by Omnibus Press, available on Amazon and wherever fine books sold. I know the Mr. Gallant, Professor Gallant, you seem to enjoy the book as well. Very much so, Chachi. We have, um, those of us in, in the Beatle world and, and even those outside of it who dip their toes in are very used to having authors or researchers tell us the day-by-day chronicle. And our guest book, though, does go beyond that because he, he also blends the voices of the people from that time who were telling things about a particular day or series of days close by each other to really give us the context of what the Beatles were doing and how they were they're traveling and really working very hard as a, as a working band, even at the same time as they're at the top of the charts. And this uh, 63 is so um, incredible that way. And from our advantage in the U.S. historically, we think that we begin everything, right? So we think Beatle World starts in February of 64, but of course, in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, 63 is really the, the, the incredible year. It was something that started like a, with the buildup of a, of a rubber band being drawn back. And then all of a sudden within that year, it snaps and it just takes off into the, into the ether, right? So into the stratosphere. But David's book is, I always think of it as very much in a, in an English tradition of a chronicle. I mean, Dr. Johnson had his Boswell and Samuel Pepys did his diary of the plague year and the fire, right? London fire. So there's, there's a great tradition of that. And I think 63 is really, really important that way. So I'm uh, I'm not surprised that that became the focus of the year. I'll be fascinated to hear David's reason why, even beyond what we may think on the surface is important about the year, how he really found it was so important on the ground level. That is correct. And it's, I'm excited about the conversation with David. And we uh, welcome him right now. Hello, David. How are you? Welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. Hi. Good to be here, Chachi. Thank you so much. And David, David's too. I just want to say, I just want to say one thing that came to my, my publisher, Omnibus, told me, I don't know if it's true. He says, to his knowledge, it's the only rock book that's been written about any act where you just cover one year of their career. I could be wrong, but that's what he told me. So I think we should do it a bit more often, don't you? I, I totally, <laughs> I completely agree. 1963, <laughs> certainly in America, we were celebrating, well, not celebrating, but we were listening to music by people like Bobby Vinton. So it was refreshing in 64, uh, which will be next year, 60 years since the Beatles arrived in America. But 1963, an important year for the Beatles. And Professor, they were so young. I mean, Paul turned 21 in 1963. And so, Davith, why that year? Why is 1963 so important in the story of the Beatles? Well, they flew back from Hamburg on January the 1st, unknown outside Liverpool and the Northwest. They went up to Scotland and did a little four-day tour. And by the end of the year, they were six weeks away from being on the Ed Sullivan show. And we're talking about an era, certainly in England, there were no credit cards back then. So if you wanted to buy a ticket to go and see a show, you had to either line up outside and in by the end of the year, you've had kids, teenagers, lying on sidewalks under sleeping bags in pouring rain sometimes with their mums and dads bringing them food and drink at three o'clock in the morning. It's not a touch of a button back then. Uh, a lot of people didn't have telephones in their houses. 
unlikely that people had more than one car in a family, even if they had one car. So to go from nothing to that in the space of 12 months has never happened. It hadn't happened before. It hasn't, hasn't happened since. So it was, it was really that extraordinary year where, where it all came together in a very short space of time. In England, four number one hit singles, two number one albums, a bunch of EPs that actually made the singles charts. It was just, you know, we've, we've never, never seen anything like it. Well, let me ask you about you in 1963. How old were you? Where were you in 63? Certainly you have <laughs> what sounds like an English accent. So were you in England during this period? Where were you? Yeah, I was, I turned 13 in 1963. I was a chorister at Canterbury Cathedral, which is the home of the Anglican Church worldwide. So I spent my time like eight, eight services a week singing into the cathedral. And I've always been credited with introducing the Beatles into the choir school. Uh, so we had a little, little magazine that we put out and I wrote an article about the Beatles in November 63. So that's, that's what I was doing. So I never got a chance to see them back then because I was, you know, I was away at school and singing all the damn time. That was me in 63. And that was in London or England? No, in, in Canterbury, which is 60 miles southeast of London. So you were right there, kind of in the thick of it, certainly closer to it than we were in America. And I, and I said at the beginning, I mean, they were young. I mean, Paul turned 21 in 1963, and they were on the verge of worldwide music domination. And, and these young guys, it's a pretty amazing story. Well, a, a big difference between the U.S. and the U.K. is that Back in 63 and before and after, we had four tabloid pop newspapers, not color magazines like 16 or Teen Beat, stuff like that. These were newspapers. And they and the, my personal favorite was the New Music Express, known as the NME. Back then, its weekly sales were 350,000 copies, would you believe? And I used to go and buy it every single Friday. And I remember distinctly in... January of 63, on Friday, we always played sports, then we had tea, and then we went off and had choir practice before the 5.30 even song. So after tea and before choir practice, I'd run out into out of the precincts to WH Smith, the news agents, and I'd get my copy of the NME, and I ran back, and I'll always remember seeing Please Please Me go in at number 17. And next week it was five. And, it, and that's what you do. You turn to page five to see what the top 30 was that week. So that was, that was, I mean, I knew about Love We Do, had heard it, obviously, but seeing Please Please Me go in at 17, I thought, this is it. This is it. Wow. And I actually have a story in the book. It's a friend of mine's story I was, I was at school with. So Easter was our, Easter and Christmas were our big times because we had tons and tons of services to think. Easter Monday, we were given four days off. He lived in southwest London. He invited me up to stay with his family for the four days we had off. And on the Tuesday, we went into London. His father worked for BBC World Service at Bush House in the Arabic service. And on the way, we bought From Me to You, and I had it in my little white paper bag, got in there, and like a 12-year-old Oliver Twist, I said, could, could, we, could we listen to this? Because on one side of the studio were like six turntables with the biggest speakers I'd ever seen. So I can't remember whether his dad put the record on or whether he allowed me to put the needle on the record. So the first time I ever heard from BCU was being blasted out by BBC turntable and speakers. So that was a pretty cool thing to happen. Isn't that amazing? Uh, David? Well, I, I love that the, the question, Chachi, about what David was doing at that time. And not only do we have the whole sort of picture of the world, we've got David, is, correct me if I'm wrong, but a fairly, and not to be, not to have a pun here, but a fairly cloistered world you lived in. A, a young person in a school associated with Canterbury Cathedral, it must have seemed like, in some ways, forbidden thing that a lot of other kids were getting into because it was really catching like that, right? And and just sort of little pieces. And I think of, of there's a, I don't know, I mean, many people say perhaps the release of, of, of She Loves You or the press reports around it that sort of opened that door from maybe the black and white world of post-war England into Technicolor, right? And and mania, right? People sort of isolate a particular date. I'm sure you 
you you chronicle that buzz certainly around that time. But for a, a kid your age, this must have felt like something that even though other kids were talking about it, you you couldn't really express it that well, right? Or that loudly. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't smiled upon, right? Well, yeah, I mean, in my circumstance, because of where I went to school, I mean, we we all had to play the piano and one other instrument. And and most of the other boys were already focused on classical music. And there are, I can think of at least six, seven kids I was at school with who have pursued music professionally and are at the top of their game even to this day. I mean, one's a, just retiring as the conductor of a major orchestra in the UK. And so it was forbidden in that. I think it was felt that none of us should be listening to pop music. And I kind of... Yeah, I thought, well, I don't care whether we should or shouldn't. I, I this is what I'm going to listen to, and and it was just and and also back then there were the the, the BBC there were there were three channels. There was the light program, which played a, a modicum of popular music. There was a thing called Needle Time, which was all to do with the Music Citizens Union. So a lot of the music played on the light program was orchestral stuff, and there was very small amount, very small window during the day where you could listen to pop music. So the only alternative was a station called Radio Luxembourg. So what they did, they recorded their programs in London. They'd sent the tape out to Luxembourg, which was out of reach of the British authorities. So they'd beamed it back into the UK at night. But the reception was terrible. So I remember even the late, late 1960s, I listened to, listened to it under, under the pillow in, in, in bed at night. And it would just fade in and out. And so you never heard a complete record. I'll always remember hearing the first time I heard well, "Why Do Shade of Pale." I, I remember reading about it and how how special it was. So when I heard it on Luxembourg, I thought, this has to be it. And then it faded out. I never heard it was it, but it was. So it was pretty basic back then. And the, the whole thing about going from black and white to Technicolor, I don't think that really started until the following year. I mean, there was there are some photos of the Beatles from late '63 that are in color. But other than that, it was a very black and white world, certainly. In yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's why I was referring to it a little bit more in, in terms of a sensation, like the famous Philip Larkin poem Honest Mirabilis and his reference to 1963 as the year that sexual intercourse began. Now, I don't want to make any assumptions about a 13-year-old boy singing quiet, but I mean, Larkin writes that, I mean, it's published in 74, he wrote it in 67. And even he says in the in the parentheses that it was a little late for me, but that he he timed the the beginning of sexual intercourse in a very ironic way between the end of the ban on Lady Chatterley's Lover, the Lawrence novel in sixty one, and the Beatles' first LP, right, which comes out in March of uh, of sixty three. That somehow something happened in that interval that that remapped the sexual geography of modern life. I don't know if that's it's, it's, it, I always, I, we read that poem together in class and obviously I, I tell him he's making a poetic exaggerated point, but there's a point there to be made. Uh, and, and the Beatles are prying players in it. I don't know if you'd want to give us a gloss to Larkin or not, but. No, I think that's important, but there's another aspect which happened in late 62, going to 63, which is also important, was the Perfumo affair, which is a case uh, where, yeah. where John Perfumo, who was a member of the conservative government at the time, had, I won't say an affair, had sex with a young lady who had had sex with a Russian agent. And it brought the government down. And so there was, there, there was an element, both with Lady Shatty's lover and the Prosumer affair, that sex was something that the upper classes were allowed to do, but no one else was allowed to do. And suddenly it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not right. So let's all have fun and let's all enjoy ourselves. So I think there was a knocking of, and the Beatles helped that as well. I think that with the Beatles coming along and the Profumio of knocking down the Conservative government, it was really a time to to knock the establishment and say enough of this. And the Beatles were instrumental in that as well because there were these four guys with funny accents from up north. And it, it changed everything. And so therefore we can't look at the Beatles in the prison of just music. They They were so much more than that. They changed the way... Certainly in England, we looked at life. Wow. Well, I'm, I found the book to be so extraordinary. The Beatles, 1963. 
And man, some of the stories are simply amazing. It looks like you put a lot of time and research into this. And so tell us about that. How, when did you have this idea? How long did it take until the moment the book was released? Because it really is an extraordinary book. And we invite everyone well, to go and check it out and buy it. The Beatles, 1963. So I lived down on Cape Cod. And in the late 2000s, I, as a parallel career, I was acting on stage up in Boston, various theaters. So five nights a week, I was driving back and forth along Route 3. And I hadn't had a book out for, I think, three or four years. And I thought, what next? I just came up with it one night on the way home. My, I started it by sending letters to local newspapers in England, asking them to print a letter saying, if you saw the Beatles in 63, drop me a line. And I started getting responses, which were good, but emails are not, you can't interact with an email other than you send them back one or they send you back. So I called a friend of mine who I'd worked with at Decca Records in the 1970s called Jan Gammy, and I said, how would you be up for phoning up these people and having a chat with them? And she said, fine. So, so having that conversational aspect of, it, of the interview, she got far more out of them than, than I could get out of emails. So she would do the interview, send me the raw details and the data of what she'd done, and I would edit the whole thing together. So probably 70% of the book are her interviews rather than my interviews. Then I realized that I really needed to go to England to to crack this. It was just not working long distance. So I think I did three two-month trips over there or like six years, like 2012, 2014, 2016. Spent a lot of time in the British newspaper library and now the British library because the newspaper library has gone many, many hours there. And I just drove around the country and I, I, I reenacted the Scottish tour, which is a good thing because I found out something that didn't tie with what we knew. So I pretty much went to all the places that they gigged in 63, either buildings that are no longer there or buildings that still are there. So it took me probably 10 years and then COVID came along and I was kind of finished with it. And then the publisher got stuck, they couldn't do anything. So it probably took me 10 years, but it was so much fun. It was really It truly is amazing through the different things I've read in it, different stories. People love to tell their own Beatles story. And I see that throughout the entire book. Some great, great stories. For instance, I never heard this before, but I I thought, okay, we're, we're, we're taping this broadcast in August. So I thought I'd look and see what is the entry for today for Beatles 1963. And uh, they did a six-day stint at the Odeon Theater. They had to lower this curtain so the fans would leave after the show. They just stayed in their seats. They had the staff dressing in Beatle wigs at the backstage door to distract the fans from seeing the Beatles leave in the front door, or through the front door. And then there's an interview where Ringo talks about owning a hair salon. But I never heard this before. Paul comments that the band was considering having Ringo dance up front for a few songs while Paul took over on the drums. Uh, and I don't expect you to remember every entry, but I had never heard that before. Professor, have you ever heard that they were going to have Ringo dancing while Paul played the drums? I mean, pretty. Well, pretty- I always, I always knew that, that Paul had that secret drummer side and, and obviously he drummed on various things for the bell of John and Yoko and, and the joke about Ringo's only the second best drummer in the Beatles, but the Ringo dancing, I had not heard before. That's, that would have been quite a scene. Can you then comment just, on two, that? Two, two things to add there. The thing about Ringo being the second, that Ringo being the second best drummer in the Beatles was always credited as being a John Lennon comment. Totally untrue. It was actually a joke that was cracked in, I think, 1973 by a comedian in England called Jasper Carrot. He was the guy that came up with that line. John Lennon never said it. The other thing is, one of the interesting things back then was that when you went to the theatre in England, at the end of the evening, they play the national anthem and everyone would stand up. So what they, what they did at most of these venues was when the Beatles finished, they played the national anthem and, and you, if you didn't stand up and stay there, you, you know, like you'd be executed kind of thing, attitude. So all the kids had to stay there while the national anthem was played by which time the Beatles were gone. So th- that wasn't the reason they played the national anthem, but I just think it's a great thing that these poor kids go, 
damn God save the Queen. I want to see the Beatles, but they couldn't. It was like, can't, we can't leave but the National Anthems. I mean, it's the same thing here. It's, I mean, if, if you're, I mean, maybe the Star Spangled Banner, you don't run up, you, if you don't, if you don't stay there, you're in a lot of trouble. So, so that That's happened correct. at a lot of venues. They played that. That's correct. Professor. The, the unknown last line of God Save the Queen is God Save the Queen and the Beatles have left the building. Uh, I know that, that David has mentioned this a bit before. There may not be a specific date tied, but certainly within the, pun intended, the climate of the time, that the fifth Beatle, maybe for the early part of 1963, maybe Brian Epstein, maybe George Martin, but the fifth Beatle was really the weather. Right, the the incredible sort of epic winter of 1963, which in the English mindset, now I talk about that to my students and say, well, the Beatles unwittingly played a part in maybe helping people out of this horrible gloom. It paralyzed certain parts of the, of the UK over that time. And I don't know, David, if you want to tell any particular moments that the weather played a role in in the the Beatles epic 1963. Well, um, first of all, if you go to YouTube, you can see. Lots of footage of the winter of '63 in England. So the the basically the the weather came down from the north uh, on December the 26th, and it filtered its way down and then hit England big time after that. And it it didn't really it didn't snow the whole time, but there was snow on the ground until about March. And so they, for example, the very first gig where they came back was supposed to be. The five, you know, the five day Scottish tour. The first gig was in Keith, up in the north part, northern part of Scotland, kind of west of Aberdeen. And they couldn't play it. So what happened was they flew back to London under their book. Neil Aspel, their roadie, was driving in the van from Liverpool up to Glasgow Airport where he'd meet them and then drive to Keith. And they, that's where they did the first gig. When they, they spent the night in London when they got back. So they went back to London Airport the next day. When they got there, they were told, you're flying to Aberdeen, Glasgow Airport's closed, which is where the whole thing about 63 and how primitive things were. So Neil Aspel was on his way, no cell phones. Yes. So he gets to the airport. I mean, no one knows. I'm guessing when Mark Lewison's Volume 2 comes out, I'm sure he knows the answer. I'm guessing that when he got to Glasgow Airport, he must have phoned Brian Epstein and said, they're not here. Where are they? Brian Epstein presumably would have been phoned by the Beatles from Aberdeen saying, by the way, bro, we're in Aberdeen, not Glasgow. And then Brian, but then Aspinall then had to drive to Aberdeen where they spent overnight. John, in the meantime, flew back to Liverpool from Aberdeen to see Shinsky and spend the night with her, flew back up to Aberdeen the next morning. And then they set off and did the first gig in Elgin. So the very first day of, day of the year was cancelled because of the weather. And then they were doing a double header in the, in the Midlands area in the middle of January. They were supposed to do two gigs that night, had to cancel the second one. They couldn't get to it. So, but the extraordinary thing about the Beatles was, was I think those were the only two gigs that they didn't do. They somehow made it everywhere. Back then in England, you had one motorway, the M1. All the other roads were A roads, which are subsidiary roads. So what they managed that year is just extraordinary. There's a great story. Neil Aspinall was sick at one point. He had flu. So they asked Mal Evans, who was a telephone engineer that used to go and see them, became buddies, asked him to drive them down to London for a couple of radio shows they were doing. On the way back, like 11 midnight, that's why they were on the road. The, wind, the windshield on the van blew out. So uh, Al Evans smashed the rest. Of it, so there was no glass left at all. Fashioned a balaclava helmet with a brown paper bag over his head and drove back to Liverpool when they got back at four o'clock in the morning. And this day in the age, they'd call out AAA and say, come and help us. But no, they just, they just kept going. The, their dedication to what they were doing was just extraordinary. They did. Th yeah. They played 320, 323 gigs in 1963, by the way. I tell you, a youth is a great thing because when you're 21 years old, I mean, nowadays I cannot stay up 24 hours. But as I said, they were in their early 20s. In fact, I checked Paul's birthday in your book, 
And it talks about some things that I did not know, including John was pretty mean at this party. I don't know if you, and I don't expect you to remember every entry into the book because it's such a huge, so much information. But John was was a real teddy boy, causing trouble, getting into fights. He was yelling at Joey Kramer, not Joey Kramer, (laughs) Billy J. Kramer. Joey Kramer's an Aerosmith. Billy J. Kramer saying, you're nothing, Kramer. We're the, we're the top. And then, you know, punching Bob Wooler. And that entry, I found that to be interesting. All at Paul's 21, 21st birthday party at his Auntie Jen's house and thereabouts. Right. So I don't know if you can. That ends, yeah, I mean, that, that, so what had happened was that they had a, they'd had a vacation in late April, early May. And. Paul George and Ringo had all gone to Tenerife to stay at Klaus Gorlin's parents' house. And John decided to go to Barcelona with Brian Epstein. And there's always been this thing, did something happen between them, you know? Anyway, so, so at this party, John was getting very, very drunk. Bob Wooler, who was one of the champions, I mean, he hosted many of the, cha- the cavern gigs and, and other venues beyond. I mean, he really was supportive of the band. But John got very drunk, and Bob Wooler made some comment to him about, so what did you and Brian get up to in Barcelona? So John decked him one, and uh, bad enough that uh, Bob Wooler had to be taken to hospital by Brian Epstein. It was in all the national newspapers the next day, well, not all, but it was in the tabloid newspapers the next day. But the kind of the irony of all of this was that Bob Wooler and Baron Wine in 1963, homosexuality was illegal in England. Bob Wooler was a gay man. And he'd made this comment about John being gay, and John decided to deck him because he was drunk. And in fact, the following day, they were doing a radio show down in London, and John refused to go down and take part. And um, Brian Epstein said, you're damn well going. And, and, I, and you know, he was kind of sent for and told, you, you, you're going, you're, you know, you're not going to miss this. Unprofessional. So, and then John sent him a telegram, sent Bob Wool a telegram, apologizing for his behavior. But it was, it was a drink. It was the drink that did it. Wow. Unbelievable. Professor. Well, I'm, uh, you know, there's a, there's a nice quaint story of these uh, two girls who traveled down from London to see them at the Winter Gardens Theater. And I focused on July 9th of 63, because I'll ask my students why 1963 was the most important year in the history of the world. And they'll guess about JFK's assassination and other things. And I say, no, it's because it's the year I was born. So focus on July 1963, <laughs> which is a nice story of these two girls who will go down to see them and get some backstage access and photographs. And George gave them a toy dog named George, I guess, down in Barbie, the Winter Gardens Theater. So I focused on July 9th. Chuck, to you were focusing on some of their birthdays. I focused on my actual date of birth to see what they were doing that day. Something fairly pedestrian amongst the 323 shows. Goodness gracious. Well... The, the two the two girls in questions were actually in question were actually journalists. One of them was Maureen O'Grady, who I used to work with at Decca Records. So I've known her since mid nineteen seventy. So she, yeah, she 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 has some great stuff to tell me. I mean, some, and one of the decisions I made was that I'd only have one story per day. So if two people came in with a story, I had to pick the best one of the two. And so Maureen had enough stories to probably stretch over half a dozen days during the year, but I could only give her one day. So there are other parts of her stories that are, you know, that year that are, I think there's one about, they were supposed to go to the Lake Serpentine Hyde Park for a photo shoot that didn't happen. And then she remembers being on the tour, the November tour with Arthur Howes, who was the promoter, used to drive around on the uh, E-type Jag and always invited the young female journalist because he was a good for nothing, you know. Anyway, so there were all sorts of things like that. A lot of things I left out of the book. I was told, by the way. But yeah, that was that was that was Maureen and Fiona. The other one was was it, it wasn't Fiona? No, it was, it was Dawn. It was oh, oh, Fiona Adams. Yeah, yeah. So so the cover of the book is the famous Twist and Shout EP. Fiona Adams took that photograph and again to give you a context of that period. If you look at that photo, they're all jumping up in the air over like bricks. That was near Euston Station in London, and that was left over from the Second World War. I mean, that's, yeah. we're talking about 18 years later, and London still had, there were parts of London that still showed 
bomb damage from the Second World War. So that that brick wall was just there next to Euston Station. It hadn't been rebuilt even 18 years later. Well, that yeah. photograph just goes down in history. I mean, that, that is, you know right. who they are, even if it was just a silhouette with the Beatles. Memorable photograph. Right. Oh, well, I was I was hoping that, and I know these tales are, are often told, but I think that Daft's, Daft's approach was rather unique. A little bit about the days involved with George's visit to the U.S. to to visit Sister Louise. And I, I just, I love seeing and reading some of those. And I had always, probably they were next to each other. I had always been told, or just in geographical terms, people would say St. Louis, but of course it was very Southern Illinois where, where Louise lived. But it tell us a little bit about maybe some things that stood out about any recollections of George's visit to the U.S. before anyone knew what the Beatles were. Well, the first thing is, the fact that he had come to America prior to February 64, very few people had known about. I mean, it was kind of a secret that evolved over the years. So his sister, older sister Louise, had moved there in, I think, 56, or she'd left Liverpool in 1956, got married, and had originally gone to Canada, then moved down through her husband's work. So George went with his brother Peter to see her. And prior to that, Louise's mum, had been sending copies of Beatles singles to Louise in Benton, Illinois. And she would take them down to this local radio station. And on that station was a teenage girl whose father co-owned the station. And she did Saturday mornings, and she was a 17-year-old high school senior. So when George decided to come and see Louise, he said, I really want to meet this girl who's been playing the records. And so I found her. Her name is Marsha Raubach, and she tells the story remembering the first time she ever saw George. So she'd actually left the station that Saturday morning, got a call saying George has arrived, so she drove back. His number one concern was the car she had, because he'd never seen a car, a Cadillac that had gone from the father. He was freaked out by that, so it was fantastic. She remembers that he was wearing sandals and he had long hair and he was really thin. But then on that trip, they he went to... I mean, he he did a couple of gigs with a band called the Paul Vests, right. and and one of one of the gigs is after the show, someone goes up to the leader of the Paul Vests and said, "You should you should hire this guy. He's really good." Because they had a clue who he was, <laughs> but they thought you know this is this guy should be in your band. But they went to, went to drive in movies, which and oh, there's a there's a lovely bit where he went to went to drive in movie, and they were showing a double bill, and. The other, one of the two films on it was the Clifford Richards film called It's a Wonderful Life, which had a different title in America. And he's, he's sitting there with Louise watching this film, The Drive the Movie, and he taps her on the shoulder, leaves the crew and says, I know him, because <laughs> he had obviously met Clifford yeah. But uh, it's, it's a, there's a guy who's written a book just about George's visit to, to um, Penton, Illinois, which is well worth a, worth a read. But yeah, so that was John, that was George's, uh, Trip to America. I don't know if this is the same author who wrote a great article in Smithsonian Magazine about this trip. And one thing, Chachi, is that George went into, you know, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been like a Woolworths, but correct me if I'm wrong, it was almost like a, a, a hardware store, but also sold records. <laughs> and so they had a little right. record department in this hardware store. It's like going into an Ace Hardware and, and then they had a little record department. And of course, there were no, there were no Beatle records there, but he had asked. Now, David, this is also the source. Sorry, can I just interrupt? Can I, no, can no, I, please, can please. I just interrupt you just one moment? Sure, absolutely. One of, the, one of the records he bought when he was there from that, that store was James Ray's Got My Mind Made Out. Ew, that's exactly yeah. what I was going to bring up. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It gains new legs, of course, in popularity with uh, off the, the Cloud Nine album, right? Which is George's great 80s comeback. Yeah, it's right. fantastic. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, so that's you got that, got that, uh, got that record there. But it's a, it's a great little insight of like it's almost someone imagining what would happen if a Beatle came to the U.S. and no one knew who the Beatles were. Right? We had the film yesterday, and George is doing that right at the beginning. So, in the middle of right. the middle. Now, Louise was not what we would call a war bride, was she? She just happened to marry someone who was Canadian or relocated to Canada then to the U.S. Oh, no, she wasn't a war bride. No. That's a good question. I'm not sure what his nationality was. I mean, he no, might I... have been English. Sure, but but do you know Churchy? 
Well, I don't know exactly, but I know he was an engineer. He got a job in America, and yeah. she went with him to America. And it was early on, yeah. late 50s, as you say. Yeah. Whether he was American or Canadian, that I'm not sure of. But the fact that you tracked down the DJ still with us on this <laughs> earth to recall that and to remember he was wearing sandals. He had, And when she says he had long hair, we know how long his hair was. Not very long, but it's amazing that you tracked her down. And that's what's great about your book. There's so many different storylines and just you finding that DJ today. Well, but what I love about that is that one of the things I wanted to do was, as much as I possibly could, was to have photographs of the storytellers as they were in 63. And Marsha provided this fantastic photograph of her at 17. Yeah, that, that's worth the book alone. It's just this great, great photograph of a high school senior. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, for example, some of the people I found, I mean, I found Chris Montez's manager, Jim Lee, who lives out, he he, he became, he's been a realtor in pre, you know, recent years, whatever, he all, has all sorts of interesting things. And he wrote Let's Dance and was his manager. And he kind of, it's really interesting. There's been this thing about when the Beatles talked with Tommy Ryan and Chris Montez, the Beatles were so popular they topped the bill. And Jim Lee said, that's absolute nonsense. If that had been proposed to us, Chris and I would have been on the first plane back to Los Angeles. The only gig that they topped the bill at in that tour was when they played Liverpool, as it was hometown. But, I mean, Jim Lee's insights, Jim Lee was on the coach with them and he had a, a, like a video recorder thing. I mean, a very early one. And he filmed what was going on on the bus. So he filmed, he's got the Beatles on film on, in the tour bus. But he wasn't very skilled as operating. So it's, it's all double visions. It's absolutely useless. But, but he, he, told, he, he, just, he told me some great stories about, about, about that tour. But, I mean, that's the other thing. There's a, I, I put in the back of the book a, thing, a little chapter called Discrepancies, Myths and Mistakes, because there have been many. And so I wanted to, where I could, correct things that have been said wrong. Alternatively, where there are mysteries over things, I, so for example, Angus McBain, the photographer, that, that took some photos up earlier in the year. There's, there's a date. No one knows the date of this, the first series of photographs he did. And I have, by process of elimination, worked out the only day I believe it could be but I do reference it in the back of the book saying, look, I mean, I could be wrong, but I can't see any other day this could have happened. So there's a fair amount of that kind of thing. There's a, there's a fame, the day after they cut, please, please me out. But there's a poster of them doing a gig up in Sheffield that is, poster's completely fake. It's, it's, it's the wrong day of the week. They have the Beatles logo before blue designed. They have please be number one, which it wasn't. So, and what's and the problem with the internet? Once it's out there, it's out there forever, and you can't take it back. But if you ever see a gig of the Beatles at the Azena Ball on February the twelfth, didn't happen. <laughs> End of story. What happened was that Peter Stringfellow, Peter Stringfellow was there, was a who became very famous later on in life as an entrepreneur. Of, he owned clubs. He owned the Hippodrome in London. He promoted that gig, and he booked them into a place called the Black Cat, and he so on February the twelfth. He realised that. He'd sold too many tickets for the venue. So he found a larger place called the Zena Ballroom, which he booked them in for April. So I think what he did was, in between February and April, the band played Sheffield twice. And he wanted to be, take credit for being the first guy to book the Beatles in Sheffield. So he kept with the story of February the 12th. But then I found someone who saw the gig at the Zena Ballroom in April. And she said, no, it was February the 12th. I said, no, it was nice. They put 12. She says, no, it was my birthday. I was given the tickets for my birthday. So obviously what happened was that she was given tickets for the gig at the Black Cat on the 12th and has forgotten that the venue was then changed, but she could still use her tickets. But she's wrong because they were playing somewhere else that night. So, gotcha. but again, is, it's out there. And this is so fascinating because I was curious what they were doing right around the day, the famous day of the of the ten hour recording session with the Please Please the album. To think that they were able to do anything the day after, it's is amazing. You know, when 
just the, the way that that, that that day proceeded and the legend about it and, and John being, his vocal cords nearly being shreds by the end of the day. I mean, how could you do anything? But of course, they had to do something. Just, I just go back to the number that referenced earlier. 323 gates in a 365-day year. I mean, of course, they were always doing something. When And so I'm glad to hear these stories about, quote-unquote, the day after, that there even was a day after is amazing to me. Well, but wait a minute. There's much more on February the 12th. Well, wait, so, there's more. There's, wait, 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 there's more. So there's a, there's a very famous uh, series of photographs of them larking around in a swimming pool, which was done for a teen magazine called Valentine. No one has ever, ever pinned down the date. So I just broke the thing down as much as I could. Ringo in it still has his teddy boy haircut, not his beetle haircut. So I think the beetle haircut he had was March the 25th. I could be wrong. So we know it was before then. So I found one of the guys who was a, who, who's in the pool with them. So two of the staff, two of the people working on Valentine were in the pool with them a girl and a, and a young guy. I found him and he remembered, I think, Please Please Me had charted, or something about Please Please Me. I then found the photographer who I think when I found him was 91 years old, something like that. He said, I drove them to London Airport in my Beetle car. But he <laughs> wishes he kept, because that would have been, could have sold it for a point. So, so I, I started pinning down all the possible dates. So I knew they were flying up north. So I, I was eliminating all the days that they couldn't have flown up north. And the only day, the only possible day they could fly up north was they did a gig in Oldham, which is uh, east of Liverpool, quite close. The only, t the only day they could have flown from London to Liverpool was the day after they cut Please Please Me. So they cut Please Please Me, stayed in the hotel, and were at this swimming pool at nine o'clock the next morning to do this photo shoot. Then had to be driven to London Airport, flew up to Liverpool, and then went to Oldham and did a gig that night. I mean, it's Damn. just extraordinary. Now, again, that's part of my discrepancies, myth and set, because someone might come along and say, no, no, that photograph was done on this date. But there are no other dates I could find that would fit the scenario of them flying up from London, et cetera, et cetera. So. It has to be the day. It has to. It's extraordinary. I, I do want to mention that you and I have a mutual friend, and I, I've known this gentleman for many, many years. English guy, uh, sweet, sweet guy. We worked together on Beetle projects through the years. Little did I know that Tony Rain actually grew up in Blackburn, Lancashire. <laughs> Tony kind of runs the Cape Cod Melody Tent, South Shore Music Circus. Dear friend, known him for years. Turns out, David, you're dear friends with him as well. He's in the book with his period photograph as a child and talking about his dad who made a recording of the Beatles from their television and the tape still exists today. And a lot of that happened back then. And Tony Rain grew up in Blackburn, Lancashire. So tell us about Tony and your friendship with him. And that entry in the book on page 360, I love this guy, great guy. So Tony lives down in Chatham on Cape Cod back in 1995-ish, something like that. I was directing a play at the Chatham Drama Guild, which is just a community theater. And this 14-year-old girl came in and said, oh, I'd love to be involved. I said, right, do you want to stage manage the show? She said. Well, I've never done that before. I said, that's cool. That's fine. I'll, I'll take you through it. The powers that be at the Chatham Drama goes, no, you can't do this. You, you, can't, you can't give a 14, 15-year-old girl this responsibility. It was Tony's daughter, Chelsea. So I knew Chelsea before I knew Tony. And then our paths didn't cross that much until actually quite recently. I can't remember how it, how, how it all happened. There was a there's a there's a singer on Cape Cod called Siobhan Magnus who was in American Idol and did quite well. And a few years ago, we came up with the idea of of doing shows where she'd sing. She had a band, and she, we'd sing these songs. I wouldn't sing them. She'd sing these songs, and I would tell the story behind each song in between each song. And that's where Tony and I really 
kind of got a relationship going. We had we had several ideas, and I had the idea of saying, "Why don't you get Siobhan to cut the Dusty in Memphis album at the track for track?" So they went down to I think they went down to Muscle Shoals actually, and they cut four tracks down there. So I've been in touch with Tony ever since. So probably going back, I don't know, seven or eight years. But I mean, I'd known him the whole time, but we just, our paths hadn't crossed during that time. But he's a fount of knowledge of stuff as well. You know, I mean, he's a little bit later than I, because he's more of 70s kind of guy, because he was seven in 63. And his dad saw the Beatles at the Cavern Club. Right. Well, there's another, there's another guy. Who's who's even younger? I think he was five. His name is Ralph, and I can't remember his last name. Anyway, I think he's Christmas Day in the book. And if I can, if I can just cheat for a minute, he because I want. I think his name was Ralph Farino. I think. Let me just see if I. Here we go, Ralph Farino. So he's standing in front of a car, wearing a school uniform with a cap. He is now a soccer coach in Ipswich, Ipswich, Massachusetts. He's been over here for years. And uh, so he, so yeah, he's even cuter than Tony because he's even smaller than Tony. I mean, perhaps my favorite story in the book is August 4th, I think it is. The four year old girl had, she turned four on, on when they were playing up in Clandidno in North Wales. And John and Paul came round to the house and sang Happy Birthday to her. The story is a lot more complicated than that. Buy the book and you can find out what, you know. But her, her story is absolutely wonderful. It involves her uncle, John Haig, who was at college with John. He became an artist. John bought him a house in the 70s, probably in the 70s, when he couldn't afford it because he was a, a struggling artist and a painter. And it's just a great, great story. And 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 the, the girl in question, I'd say, was forced. She can remember very little of it. Her mum told her the story in the 1990s. So she related to me what her mother had told her about that weekend when when they were they'd happened to be in North Wales where her aunt lived or her grandmother lived and her uncle John came with them. The Beatles were playing there. John went backstage to see John Lennon, and and then her uncle John and she were invited to their hotel, and John was a girl side was screaming outside. So John was shaving and the girls were down, you know, they were, I don't know how many floors up in the hotel. He he leant out the window and he started flicking shaving cream all over the girls. So they started screaming because they had a bit of John's shaving cream. And then he turned back to the little girl who wasn't quite, she was a day shy of four. And he said, and I'm going to throw you out the window next. And she clung onto her uncle's leg because she didn't realize that Lennon was joking. But it's a really sweet story. That is amazing. And, and, and first, the other thing, oh, we've we, we talked about, you know, all of the ordinary folk that encountered them. There are also, I mean, Peter Asher gave me a story. Rod Argent, the zombies gave me a story. A couple of the searchers gave me stories. Roger, the great songwriter, Roger Greenaway gave me a story. Tony Burroughs, who was this amazing session singer. He's given me a story. There are a fair amount of people like that. So it's, it's, it's well-known people as well as just folks that none of us ever even heard of. The book is so great. The Beatles, 1963, A Year in the Life. Professor, final questions as we approach one hour with David. He's been generous with his time, but I know you have a, a lot of things you want to bring up. So go ahead, Professor. Well, I mean, I, I those aside, you know, now it's almost as if to have a parent who has multiple children, their favorite child, I wouldn't be so bold as to ask David. If there was one day in his chronicle that, only if, like I think, Chachi, our listeners, if they're going to go out and they're going to get Paul McCartney's 1964 a World, A Year in Photographs, so it would have a, the, new, the title of the new book, right? You can't get that without getting 1963, this chronicle. They should be, they should be uh, merchandised together at, at your local Barnes & Noble or anywhere like that, right? And so... I think that's the case, forward. didn't it, David? Wasn't are, your are, they, are they merchandised together? Sadly not. However, so the Paul McCartney photos are currently on exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery in London. And my book is sitting in the gift shop next to Paul's. So I'm pretty happy about that. Well, if, if, he, if he came by and cracked open your, your text, is there one day or one entry that the world could take away from your from your book. It's hard to pluck it out, but what day might that be? 
God, oh, that's just impossible to answer. A day, a day in the life of your year in the life. Wow. I, I, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I suppose the day they cut Please Please Me, it's just so, you know, the fact that they could record an album in a day is, is extraordinary. The Palladium show? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the Palladium show, it was of a period when every week there were, some, there were pop singers. I mean, I think the week they were on, Brooke Benton was on as well. So the Royal Command performance the following month was probably a much bigger deal. And the following day, the Daily Mirror had the headline Beatlemania, which was not the first time the word was ever used, by the way. But but if you take February the 11th, when they cut Please Leave Me, if people can go to, if you Google Substack Beatles, what we're doing is we're posting two stories, two days every month, the, the unexpurgated version. My, my original manuscript was 500,000 words. The publisher said, no. So the book, I think, is three three hundred ten thousand words. So, so we're putting in the full versions of of the days from my original manuscript. February eleventh, the story was written by the second engineer on the on the album. His story is in much greater detail. So February eleventh is a great read. If you go to, I mean, they archive all the stuff. You can subscribe, and you will be given. You'll be sent two days every single month in perpetuity until we run out. But the February the 11th story is already up there from this February. That's a pretty extraordinary day when you think that anybody could record an album day. Well, yeah. I so, mean, my, my, my question, of course, had a, had a not-so-subtle intent, Chachi, that what one would consider the most ordinary entry or the most ordinary day is what is it really extraordinary about, about Daffod's book. I mean, and the impression on me of George going into a hardware store to the record part of it and not seeing any Beatles and and thinking whatever he thought about that, or someone looking up their own birthday like I did. And I was born in 1963 on 9th of July to see this great little story. And then now Daphne builds in about the, the journalist, right? Who had so many great stories, he could only take one of hers. But what's great about that, Daphne, right? She had all these great stories that when you took someone else's story from a day she had given you a story, you have the journalist's second source backup to make sure it was true. So that's right. That what's just extraordinary is the is the ordinary of of, of any given day in the year. So it's, that's well, why it's it's a pleasure. Well, I mean, if you think about November twenty second, the, the day of JFK assassination, they were on tour, they were gigging in Stockton on Tees, which is in the northeast of England, and they heard the news while they were waiting to go on, and there was talk that the second show would be cancelled that night because they always did you know, the tour did twice nightly. But I think it was one of the Vernon's girls who was on the tour. I think John told her, and he, she described him as the ashen-faced. He just couldn't believe this. So, so they, were just, they were just early 20-year-olds playing their music around the country from November the 1st to, I think, December, you know, second week of December, you know, twice nightly, all the way through that month. And it was mayhem, but that's, that's, that was their life to suddenly be in a place in the northeast of England about to go on and suddenly you hear this unbelievable piece of information. It's, 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 it's like devastating historical stories happening during the mundanity of everything else that's going on. So the things like that as well, where, where the real world collides with their world. Well, when I started out now, I was thinking, should I include what was going on in the world at the time? And I thought, well, the book would just be just ridiculously i mean the reason i mentioned jfk because it was relevant because we know that how lenin reacted to it that night so because 63 was a pretty action-packed year i mean we mentioned perfume there was a great train robbery in august of 63 where they stole equivalent of 40 million pounds in today's money there were lots of things that happened in 63 it was a fascinating year non-beatle wise so there's a there's a I, i suppose i shouldn't plug other people's book but i will there's a wonderful book by Don Higgs that came out last year. I can't remember the title, but I think it's Bond and the Beatles. Because Love Me Do and the first James Bond film came out on the same day in 1962. And he goes into 63. It's really, it's very, it's a well, well worth a read. So, so there are all the other things going on in the world at the time. And even if you take like James Bond, I mean, films that came out in 63, it was a seism, seismic change in what happened in the world for all sorts of reasons. 
from the, I think it's, how was it phrased? Chachi knows I'm, I'm very much a fan of, of good old Ian McDonald's revolution in the head. And he has a great matrix in the end of his book that my, I have my students read where he'll say, this is what's going on in the UK current affairs that time, where the Beatles are, what they're doing that day. Now I know that a lot of that might be a little bit budged. And then what's happening in pop culture and the uh, James Bond and the Beatles, they say it, the, the British, British life went from the stiff upper lip to the lower hip. Yeah. So, right. I'm watching, um, I was, oh, I was watching a documentary about Little Richard the other day. It's just been shown on BBC television and Pat Boone's interviewed. And he said when Little Richard came along, prior to Little Richard, everyone danced from the waist up and afterwards everyone danced from the waist down. <laughs> that is great. Well, as we come to our final moments with David, Professor, I'll give you a chance to ask one other question perhaps, but the book is extraordinary. I really enjoy it. And any any stories in your book, I've, I've always been, whenever I interviewed Paul or Ringo, I would always ask about, in Paul's case, his dad, in Ringo's case, his mom, and they always loved to talk about their their parents. Any interesting stories about what was going on with their parents during 63? There's a fair amount on George's mom because uh, she would, so she would get letters to George at the house, and she replied to most of them. I can't remember the date in the book. You'll have to look for it. There's a fabulous story by someone called Lily Ferrari. She found, she paid two and sixpence, which is 20 cents, something like that, to find out there was a girl at her school that had all the Beatles' addresses and that she was selling them to people for two and sixpence. And so she bought George's address for two and sixpence and wrote a letter to him. And then a couple of weeks later, she got a letter in an unknown handwriting from Liverpool, opened it, and it was from George's mum. And their correspondence went on for several years. And the first thing that George's mum said to Lily Ferrari, are you by any chance related to the romance novelist Ivy Ferrari? And Lily wrote back and said, yes, yeah, she's my mum. So they had, the, they had this connection really early on. So Ivy would send, sorry, Lily would send her mum's new books to George's mum to read. Wow. And then like, there was like doctor at Ryminster, nurse at Ryminster. Anyway, so yeah, they, they wrote back and forth quite a while and and George's mum would send little mementos to, to Lily, little little things and, and signatures of, you know, little notes that George would leave out for her to say, wake me up at three in the morning, something like that. So... There's a fair amount of that. Then they played in um, in kind of East London, Barking, Romford area, and that's where George's, uh, sorry, Ringo's stepdad lived. So he would always go and visit them there. A little bit. Oh, there's the famous stories that I didn't come up with is famous, and that is that when they wrote "She Loves You," Paul's dad said, "Can we? What's this? Yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> making the point, you can't really have some because she loves you. Yes, yes, yes. But he was appalled at the American of yeah. having yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, I do have a story in there. I finally nailed how she loves you was written. It was started in a hotel room in Newcastle. After that gig, Paul took the train down to London, and the next day he was at a Billy J. Kramer recording session. Took the plane back to Liverpool after the session. And then John came round to his house and they finished writing She Loves You in that house on a Thursday. They then had a gig on Friday in Leeds. They then played in Birmingham. On the Saturday night, George wrote a letter to Louise on the hotel notepaper of the hotel that they were staying in. They then drove east to Great Yarmouth, which is a seaside resort on the East Coast. They did a gig there on the Sunday, drove down to London on a Monday night, they recorded She Loves You. Wow. So the whole that She Loves You from creation to recording was five days. Unbelievable. And and referring back to George's mom, I don't know if you remember this person, Professor, but Scott Wheeler was my first radio show, Beatles show producer in the 80s when I was on WBCN. And Scott, as a young boy, went to London, uh, Liverpool with his parents, walked up to George's home, knocked on the the door, Louise 
George's mother answered. And they were forever pen pals up until the end. And he sent me copies of every letter they exchanged. And you're right. I mean, she welcomed all did. George's fans. There's a, there's actually a letter, or I think there are some letters that are just about to be auctioned that Louise had written to a, a teenage fan. But one of the letters was she'd gone to see the Beatles and she, couldn't, she was really annoyed about the fact that all these kids were standing up and screaming you couldn't hear anything. So, and it goes against everything we think of Louise. We think of her as this sweet natured, you know, which is oh, damn, it's making all this noise. Unbelievable. Professor, oh. final thoughts, any last questions? Well, I just, it really lends a lot of, a, a lot of color to some of the stories that pretty much have been out there that everybody knows. But you also find out the day or two before or after that helped shape the stories. I've been, though, my great, many great takeaways, but one that will leave an impression on it is the whole story around February 12th and, 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 and other things associated with, with George's trip to, to the U.S. And just to, to, again, the number, 323 gigs in, in a one year span. I know that there are, you know, double petters and things of that nature, but it's, it's a great, it's, it's a great chronicle and will, will help me again explain to students the importance of that year. So in some ways, even the little stories on a daily basis in David's book are as poetic as what Philip Larkin gives us with a, with a, with a wink and a nod. So it's fantastic. And you know what, Chachi? I think. Some people, I know some of the people that you know, and if they could get their hands on this double exposure film, they'd be able to do something with it. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Davith, the pleasure. And uh, it's always good to speak to you. Uh, a new friend. We, we love your book. It's called The Beatles, 1963, A Year in the Life on Omnibus Press. You can get it wherever fine books are sold. And Davith, all these years you've been living down on the Cape. I live near the Bourne Bridge and uh, and you put out an extraordinary book. So we congratulate you. We thank you for coming on. Get back to the Beatles. And uh, I, I urge everyone, because we told a bunch of stories here, Professor, but we didn't even scratch the surface. The book is filled with these recollections, timeless, that will that are now housed in David's book forever. And so all of these stories should be remembered and cherished. And boy, I wish I lived in Liverpool in 1963 because it seemed like you could run into the Beatles anywhere. Like the two yeah. girls who spent the night in line, they were first, they got interviewed by a newspaper and yeah, we'll get you backstage to meet the Beatles. And they did. And boy, right before it exploded all over the world, the Beatles in 1963. I, th I think there are 294 stories in the book. Another thing that's, I mean, means a lot to me uh, is that I think that since the book's come out, I think about 20 plus of the storytellers have passed away. These people are not going to be with us much longer. If they hadn't told these stories, we would never, ever have known any of this stuff. So, so I, these, these people, it's extraordinary how, how many of these people still look back at this being the greatest part of their lives. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Didn't you get married and have kids at some point? But this is the best, you know, but, but they do. I mean, even in their 70s and 80s, the 63, when they went to see the Beatles was like, it was just, that year was just magic for them. So, so I'm really grateful to the people that gave them their time to give me stories. And sadly, that we are losing them bit by bit. And um, it's the reality of... Chachi, though, Chachi, it's the storyteller's gift, right? Yes, some of the people in, in that were contributors to David's work have left this world, but they live on forever in the pages of his book. So, and that's yeah. precisely correct. Uh, it's it really is a gift because you read these stories and you you wish you were there, you wish it was you, but the fact that these stories are forever within the cover of your book, David, it it is a gift for for younger generations who don't understand what it was all about back in 63 and 64. I feel blessed to be a first-generation Beatles fan, and uh, this book is just fantastic. So I urge everyone to go out and get it. The Beatles, 1963, A Year in the Life. would be a great book for you or maybe the Beatles fan in your life or music fans in general, because I've always said, Professor, one year in the Beatles, it's like the dog years thing. 
one year for the Beatles is, is like seven years for any other band, you know, pretty amazing. So David, thank you for your book and a pleasure to be able to call you a friend. And uh, we'd love to have you back on sometime and however we can get together to help you sell more copies. We'd be more than happy to do it, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. And yeah, if you want me back on, I'll talk about everything. We would love to because, so what is it, 60 year anniversary this year and next yeah, year in America it will be 60 years for the Ed Sullivan show. So there's going to be a lot of celebrations and we'd and love I'm to not, have I you involved. Not, I'm not doing 1964 in your life. No, that. no, no. But you know what? You know, Professor, he this lives. This is a one-on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> David lives on the Cape. So David, you and I should go in and speak to the professor's class sometime. Because they're all freshmen, right, Professor? Yes, they're all they're all about between the ages of seventeen and nineteen, and and they might be able to conceptualize a world without credit cards, a world where you wouldn't break the internet as Taylor Swift did trying to get tickets. So, but they 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 and it, like any time where you're going to learn history, you have to try to step back into that time and imagine imagine a different world, right? And the best way to do it is to have voices who are present to tell you whether they're right around you or or whether they're in print. Because David had second or third generation people helping him reach back in time, right? So it's just, yes, right? The number of guest lectures that I could have Chachi come to class, I guess I'd never have to go to work. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So thank you all for tuning in and uh, listening to our conversation today with David Rees the author of The Beatles, 1963, A Year in the Life. Get it today on Amazon, wherever fine books are sold, or if you're at the Paul McCartney exhibit, sorry, (laughs) you can pick it up there. It really is an extraordinary book, and I just love it. So thank you, David, for joining us. Thank you, Beatle Professor Gallant from Suffolk University. And you're listening to Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network, that we produce our podcast. David Yaz, thank you, Mr. Yaz, for uh, overseeing our spiritual advisor here. And once again, thanks for listening to Get Back to the Beatles. Take care. Bye-bye. He said in winter 1963 It felt like the world would freeze With John F. Kennedy And the Beatles sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.